with a slightly different format in today's Discovering Music, which is partly because of the nature of the work we're looking at. Mahler's Symphony No. 2 in C minor, sometimes known as the Resurrection Symphony, because it ends with a massive choral setting of the poem Resurrection Ode by the poet Friedrich Klopstock. Obviously, we won't be hearing the complete work today, because if we did, there'd be precious little room for anything else. But we have got three people with highly informed and very different perspectives on this symphony in the studio to discuss this monumental work, possibly the most ambitious symphony composed in the 19th century. And we'll also be hearing extracts and illustrations from the recording of the work by Marius Janssens and the Oslo Philharmonic Orchestra. And at the end, we'll be hearing a complete performance of Mahler's first take on the symphony, or at least on the symphony's first movement, a tone poem called Totenfire Funeral Rites. <laughs> Our three guests, i better introduce, are Dr Jeremy Barham, he's a writer, editor of the Cambridge Companion to Mahler, and he's senior lecturer in music at Surrey University. We also have Leslie Chamberlain, writer, critic and journalist, who's the author of a widely acclaimed study, Nietzsche in Turin. Nietzsche's relevance to Mahler will become apparent in good time, I hope. We've also Colin Matthews, the composer and collaborator with Derek Cook on the extraordinary performing version of Mahler's nearly complete Tenth Symphony. We'll be hearing a bit from each guest in turn, and each of them has provided some illustrations to underline the points that they have to make. But before that, I want to put all three of you on the spot and ask you a really hideous question. Imagine I'm somebody who's come up to a party and said, what does Mahler's Second Symphony mean to you? We'll start with you, Colin. I think I would say that it was monumental rather than either lovable or or inspiring, which is what I find the rest of the symphonies to be. Monumental. Well, we'll go into that later. Leslie, what would you say? I think it's the history of German 19th century culture. I think Beethoven, Wagner, Mahler. Mahler is a great comment on, on what's gone before and what's not possible anymore. So it takes me right into the, um, the philosophy of beauty, philosophy of art, that, that really made German 19th century culture what it was. Jeremy. I think this is partly Mahler's attempt to come to terms with the legacy of Beethoven, and it's a way of him trying to exorcise certain doubts about profound questions of human existence. Right, three fascinating areas to explore later in the programme, but uh, first of all, Jeremy, turning to you, I think for a bit of musical cultural background, I find it fascinating that just how passionately people debated issues like the nature of the symphony. I was reading, for instance, how Sibelius twisted his ankle trying to escape from two groups who were actually fighting at a concert over whether or not a symphony without a programme should be performed. What exactly was the background in terms of understanding of the symphony that Mahler came from? And, and how did he fit into this? What was his position? Well, I think... Mahler's particular contribution to the history of music is to encourage us to think about symphonies in a different way, to think about them on a different scale. This was certainly a huge challenge to contemporary audiences, contemporary critics, who were on the whole, it has to be said, in the early days of the symphony's reception, very negative about the work. Hmm. The main criticism being, it seems to me, that Mahler's challenge to the coherence and structural integrity of uh, the symphony was um, inexplicable or puzzling to many uh, conventional, let's say, uh, contemporary critics. And they cried out for some kind of verbal explanation of what Mahler was doing. So on the one hand, Mahler is paying homage to the whole tradition that he inherited. But on the other hand, perhaps more importantly, he is rethinking it in his own terms. He is adding an, an entirely new perspective on the whole ethos, the whole expectations that a symphony would arouse amongst audiences. Yes, because here we have a symphony in five movements, which is in itself fairly extraordinary. The proportions of these movements in relation to one another is unlike anything else anyone would have come before. 
And not only do you have a choral finale like Beethoven, but you have a tiny song, a tiny orchestral song in the middle, sandwiched in the middle of this, at a point where you more or less least expect it, even if you knew that there was going to be something like this in the symphony in the first place. It seems to be a symphony that delights in surprises and pulling the rug from under your feet. Yes, it does. It does play with our expectations. But I think Mahler was acutely aware of long-term musical balance and the need for contrast, the need for to have a foil, for example, for the vast final movement, and mm -hmm. which the fourth movement does provide. And, and indeed, the second movement provides a period of respite from the, the passion oh. and the sense of crisis that's um, evoked in the first movement. So I think, yes, he did play with audience expectations at the time and even now, but um, he was also acutely aware of the need for this overall dramatic balance. And I think that's the key with Mahler. For, for him, the symphony is a dramatic entity. And what I see particularly strongly in this symphony is Mahler bringing to bear all his experience as an operatic conductor, music from the stage. So he, what he seems to be doing is to uh, invest the symphony with all these um, stage and theatrical elements which kind of open up the world of the symphony to an even more intensely dramatic world. Yes, you've chosen extract from the first movement, the huge first movement, which shows, I think, rather nicely how he uses some of the basic raw materials of music in almost the way, a kind of symbolic way, a dramatist would use them in a stage work. Perhaps you could introduce us to your first long stretch. Yes, my first example, I think, encapsulates something of the dramatic conflict that has underpinned the whole of the first movement. And this is a dramatic conflict between themes, between keys in particular major and minor keys. And Mahler at this point, this is the very end of the, the movement. I mean, what you'll hear is a reiterated C major chord in the trumpets, against which the horns seem to claw away at that with uh, chromatic notes fighting against the C major again and again. And eventually the trumpets seem to give way to this pressure. And there's this bitterest of twists from an E natural to an E flat going for the major to the minor. And then it's as if the curtain is falling on this um, opening dramatic chapter of the symphony. And there's this wonderful descending chromatic line throughout the entire orchestra to finish off the movement. The end of the first movement of Mahler's Symphony No. 2, the Oslo Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Marius Janssens in that recording. Back to you, Jeremy. You've also chosen an extract from not the interlude-like second movement, but from the scherzo. Now, this is a fascinating movement that has absorbed... Well, like, composers like Luciano Berio, for instance, have even been inspired to write tributes based on this movement. This is a movement about which Mahler said a great deal in terms of the storyline of the symphony. Do you, do you think that helps in making sense of, of what's going on here? Yes, I do, actually. Um, the whole issue of Mahler's written comments on the symphony and the role of the programmes that he temporarily provided is very controversial, given that especially that, that he eventually rejected all these programmes. But I think... Perish if all programmes was the indeed, comment, wasn't yes. it? Yes. But I think if we bear in mind that these are pointers, suggestions and no more, Mahler was convinced, and I think quite rightly, that um, music has the power to express far more or things on a far deeper or higher level than words alone. And so as, far, as long as one takes these comments as that only, then it, yes, it is helpful. I mean, this movement, um, I've chosen to pass over the intermezzo, which is, I feel sorry for that movement because it does get ignored. It does perform an essential um, balance, I think, against the, the weight of the first movement. But the third movement is an intriguing reworking of um, a Wunderhorn song, which actually he was composing roughly the same time as the movement, um, St Anthony preaching to the fishes. The moral of that song being that St Anthony being fed up with uh, preaching to his human 
audience who don't pay any attention to him decided he might have a better chance going down to the local river and preaching to the fish, who indeed temporarily poke their heads out of the water and seem to be paying attention, only to just scurry off and carry on their lives exactly the same afterwards. So it's um, that song, I think, is a sort of parable or a metaphor or allegory for the human condition. And Mahler transposes a good deal of that musical material into the scherzo. It's built on uh, this sort of circling, endlessly circling, cycling, chromatically winding melodic ideas which seem to sort of spiral around themselves and not really get anywhere harmonically or melodically or motivically. And so um, it seems to project an image of the kind of treadmill of existence, the inability to escape from fate, perhaps, or simply the drudgery of one's own existence. Um, the passage I've chosen occurs about two-thirds of the way through the movement, where these circular themes, these winding themes, which, like a perpetuum mobile or moto perpetuo, seem to go on and on, reach a kind of dead end, a cul-de-sac, let's say, and they get ever more intensely repetitive until the only answer seems to utter some kind of orchestral scream. The end, or near the end, of the scherzo of the Resurrection Symphony. What's interesting, Jeremy, is that Mahler then brings that scream idea back again, doesn't he, at the very start of his finale, only this time even more massively reinforced from this huge orchestra. Yes, indeed. It's um, a fairly common technique in Mahler to create links between different movements uh, within his symphonies. And he does so here, I think, in a very significant way. He opens the final movement with that very same orchestral scream that we heard in the scherzo. But on this occasion, it peters out fairly quickly and is immediately followed by statements of a very important melodic idea which will occur later in the movement and really form the, the core, the central part of the movement. Uh, sometimes it's been labelled as the eternity motive or ascension motive, but essentially it's, you say, a falling fifth with stepwise movements um, after it. So we'll hear this scream followed by the um, so-called ascension motive. <laughs> And that falling and rising figure, da 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 da, he's still got the colours separating it so that it's not quite an entity yet. That's what forms the musical apotheosis, doesn't it, of this symphony, Jeremy? Yes, indeed. I mean, later in the movement, um, it seems to me that the core musical goal, let's say, or is when that theme is intoned by the full choir in unison and is then taken up by the orchestra uh, to form the, the concluding section of the, the entire movement. So it seems to me that at the beginning of this final movement we have the orchestral scream, the desperation, which is immediately, the terror of that is assuaged by glimpses of the resolution to come. And this is that resolution at its most intense in the final movement.
very much the apotheosis of Mahler's second symphony there. Massed choruses, ten horns, six trumpets marked mit Verstärkung, strengthened if possible. And you certainly get the point. He's got a message to ram home here. Although what that is, we'll be looking at, as regards the words, in a little bit. First of all, I'd like to bring all of you in here. And, and you, Colin, we've touched on the order, the sequence of these movements and how they work together. Do you feel that this is a structure that works as a balanced whole, in spite of its amazingly heterogeneous elements? Well, I think it is a structure that, that very much works. And I'd like to take up what, what Jeremy was saying about audiences finding it disconcerting, or perhaps critics finding it disconcerting. I think it's the sheer scale that they found so difficult. But if they'd looked in more detail, they'd have found that the structure is remarkable, that in fact within the first movement, even though it's rather panoramic, like a tableau, the structure is quite remarkable, and the way that Mahler introduces the recapitulation is, is one of those stunning moments. Even a movement like the first movement of the third, which is this huge, sprawling 40-minute sequence is is also remarkable structurally. He keeps the familiar forms just enough in the background doesn't he, for us to more or less keep our bearings, I think. I he, think yeah. more than that I would say that, I mean, they're, they're, they are very strong, but perhaps not immediately recognisable because of the way he treats them. <laughs> Leslie, do you feel, when you reach listening to that ending that we've just heard, is that just a tremendous musical ending for you here, or are there questions of, of a meaning in this music? Mm, I, th I think he's trying to tell us that there is a meaning. It's possibly a, a meaning he can only express in music. I mean, I think there is a philosophical background, but I think that the justification for Mahler is uh, it's, this is a work of art, and it's it's something that philosophy also can't express in words. So, so what I'm going to say is, is I'm in the position of, you know, Mahler, the program writer. It's probably superfluous, but maybe it's helpful for some people. Well, well we can yeah. understand in some ways why Mahler did turn against the programs because they mm. didn't always help. There's the wonderful story of the old lady who came up to him in Petersburg after the performance and said, "I'm about to die. Please tell me what the next world is like, because you obviously know so well, having written about it in your Resurrection Symphony." But this does bring us to something very, very crucial. I've also noticed this with some people's reaction to the eighth. But there's a, a lot. Some people bridle because of the religious language. But Mahler was keenly interested in the philosophy of his time. These were times when people were looking at different ways in which religious language might symbolise. It struck me, for instance, that in round about the time the symphony appeared, we also had Tolstoy's Resurrection, which is about understanding the process of resurrection in a secular sense, and Ibsen's When We Dead Awaken, which is an atheist, also approaching the idea of spiritual resurrection. Is Mahler closer to that kind of humanist interpretation, or is there a religious kernel too in what he's trying to say? For me, he's, he's much closer to the humanist uh, vision. I think the, the traditional re religious vocabulary is somewhat rhetorical, and um, he is, the, the substance that's filling his, his musical thinking uh, comes out of the philosophy of um, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And, and really this transformed what had been a, a, a Christian tradition into a modernist tradition. What kind of things had Mahler learnt, do you think, at the time he's writing the Second Symphony from Schopenhauer and, and Nietzsche that you think are, are possibly relevant and helpful? But both of them, Nietzsche certainly believed that there was a kind of resurrection that was possible purely in humanist terms, didn't he? Yes, I don't think he would have used that word because mm. Nietzsche was, of course, was in flight from from anything that sounded traditionally Christian mm. and to do with the church. I think the first thing to notice is that both Schopenhauer and Nietzsche would have described themselves as pessimists, but that there's a major difference between the two of them in, the, in that Nietzsche was building on Schopenhauer and he said what he wanted, in contrast to to what Schopenhauer gave, was a pessimism of strength. So I think that both these philosophers have their place in in, in Mahler's music. Of course, Schopenhauer, well, both of them wrote a great deal about music and, and, its, and its place for them. And um, Schopenhauer once said that music is the unconscious exercise in metaphysics in which the mind does not know that it's philosophizing. So that when, when, when this music is playing, this is something like the universal mind expressing itself. But we, we can't know that, and it can't know it. It just happens, and Mahler is trying to, to make that happen. And I think that's... That's a very helpful thought if you're trying to get at his search for meaning. Where Nietzsche comes in, I think it's much more a comment on a tradition, a, a Christian humanist tradition that is under threat. That This is the very end of the 19th century. The great empires are crumbling. 
it's there's a difficulty in taking this the the old sets of values, whether they're Christian or humanist, seriously. So why do you think he was attracted to Klopstock's Resurrection Ode? This is a man from maybe not the age of faith, but an age of more faith than the one that Mahler lived in. I suspect it was that extraordinary experience he had when he went to von Bülow's funeral. Klopstock's um, ode was played, I think, in um, set to a chorale by Bach. Mm. Mahler was taken by storm by this experience, and he suddenly had in himself the experience that said, I can finish my symphony. I think you know, not a novelist might have that experience. You know, something happens to you, and yes, that, that makes sense of all you've been trying to bring together. So it's not so much the choice of Klopstock as such, but that this spiritual experience that Mahler had in, I think it was in Hamburg. For me, the most interesting thing, I mean, we always read that Mahler changed Klopstock's words and and, uh, that most of what was set in the Second Symphony was, in fact, Mahler's own words. But there's one particular change he makes right there in the first verse. Klopstock says, the God who created you will give you eternal life. And Mahler changes that. It's just one word in German. He changes that and he says, the God who gave you a calling will give you eternal life. And this really seems to me Mahler's very special signature on his own work. This is saying, this has been my struggle to to be a composer, to transcend human limitations. And by changing that word from God created you to God called you, he's saying something about his own feeling as a composer. This is interesting because the first extract you've chosen is from the first movement. And you've you just, you just very usefully reminded us that it was this experience of going to the conductor von Bülow's funeral that gave Mahler the idea of how the symphony was to culminate. But already in the first movement, which started off as a tone poem about death, you've identified what you think are hints of a resurrection theme. Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about that, or resurrection moments. The first movement seems to be very much a portrait of um, an individual life, a kind of typical life. One feels almost this person, we see this, this, this person as a child, full of confidence, full of happiness. Uh, here I come, this is going to be my life, this is what I want to happen, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to achieve this, I'm going to do that. And of course, lives don't, don't work out like that. I mean, one is lucky or, or not lucky, and uh, there are huge blows of fate, and you recover and you go on or you don't go on. And I think that's what Mahler is creating for us, the very feeling of, of an individual life. And it's deeply moving and, in fact, deeply distressing, I think. If you, if you think of a, a young child, a young person emerging, looking forward to the, all the things they want to achieve in life, and the likelihood or not of that happening. And I think one thing Jeremy said about the changing shape and of the symphony and uh, people's expectations of the symphony, I think you could you could align that with the changing shape and expectations of the individual human life. By the end of the 19th century, there was a sense that everybody everybody was entitled to some kind of full life. And the, the life wasn't going to end for people at 40. They weren't going to die early. They, they could experience a great deal more of what was on offer than they had in, in, in previous centuries. And this was the beginning of the modern enabling of, of the individual and I, th- I think Mahler is exploring that idea with a great deal of pathos. And the struggles and the pathos of being an individual. Absolutely. of the 
struggle of the individual, the aspirations, the pathos, in the first movement of Mahler's Resurrection Symphony. But uh, you've labelled us, I think, with your next example, to fill in a little bit of a gap, because we've come to this extraordinary fourth movement. Now, this really is unprecedented in, in a symphony. What we've got here is an orchestral song in as the whole, basically, the fourth movement. This is a movement taken again from the cycle disc Nab and Wunderhorn, Youth Magic Horn. But this movement's so crucial at this point. It does feel crucial. It isn't always easy to say why. Yes, well, for me, it's an absolutely magnificent moment when all that's gone before is somehow boiled down and held together and distilled. I mean, I think the, the word I really would stick with there is distilled into this moment where the, the human voice comes in. I do think that fits with the philosophy of Schopenhauer, who said that his philosophy was to distill the ultimate idea, and that idea is man's inner nature apart from all relations and outside all time. And Schopenhauer felt that only art, and, and above all music for Schopenhauer, was the art that could get at that inner nature apart from all social relations and outside all time. And uh, there's a very strong sense that, whereas in the, in the first movement, we had our hero, our typical individual, experiencing all the flux of, of life in society, in the world, in the body. Now, suddenly, in this moment here, we've got the distillation of what it is to be a human being, somehow seen from within. And somehow freed from this aspiring, urging, desiring, wanting to become, which, which, which Schopenhauer saw as so essential to human suffering, didn't yes. he? freed from the drive, the ruthless drive to live. The, the will for Schopenhauer was this, in a way, this wheel that we couldn't get off. It was the Eastern idea. But for Schopenhauer, art, and especially music, could take us out of that flux and, and give us a kind of higher peace. Primal Light, the song that provides a kind of turning point, and as Leslie Chamberlain rather nicely put it, the distillation, moment of distillation in Mahler's Resurrection Symphony. The singer there was Julia Hamari. Well, after that moment, of course, comes the ultimate reaction, which Jeremy's already illustrated, another a hearing of that terrible scream that uh, brought the third movement to its end. And then the finale struggles back gradually towards verbal expression, towards text, towards words, and the choral setting of Klopstock's ode. Leslie, what do you think is going on here? I, for me, it seems that there's a real problem, of course, if you don't understand German, but you can, you can certainly provide a few little prompts that can open people's ears, I think, to this. And, and there is one detail that you mentioned earlier about Mahler changing the words, and I think it could help people a lot to know. It certainly helped me to know why Mahler had changed these words. 
Yes. I mean, Klopstock's first verse ends in a line that says, God who created you will give you eternal life. And already in that first verse, Mahler changes the phrase, um, God who created you, to God who gave you a calling will give you eternal life. Der dich schuf der becomes dich schuf. der dich rief. Absolutely. He who calls you, yes. And it seems to me that there, um, Mahler is actually talking about himself and to himself through this poem. He's telling us how his experience of Klopstock helped him to end this symphony. That was what happened to him at Von Yeah, Bureau's that he hit, would put his signature on this whole experience mm. and, and the notion of resurrection would give him an ending which would be sublime, which would be transcendent, but which I don't think is Christian anymore. And I think this is really where Nietzsche comes in. And I think we can look forward to Mahler's use of Nietzsche in the third symphony, where he's carried away by Nietzsche's book about joy, mm. a, a book I always call Die Fröhliche Wissenschaft in mm. German, which never sounds quite right when it's translated as the gay science. No, not at all. <laughs> or the merry science. I like to call it the science of joy. And I think that comes over much more strongly what it's about. And a lot of commentators on Nietzsche, of course, forget that he's about joy. He's about pessimism, but he's about mm. joy. He, he's about, isn't he, what he called a tragic philosophy, this idea that somehow or other art can help you look the grimness of life in the face and still exult. That, that's, that's, well, that's what it seems to me that he's saying. Yes, and Nietzsche talks a great deal about self-overcoming. I mean, the, 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 the idea of the so-called Superman is a bit of a, um, a caricature of, of this much greater idea in, in Nietzsche, where for all of us, we have to overcome many aspects of our sort of imperfect humanity to break through to this joy. And of course, Nietzsche himself was a sick man and uh, illness was one of the things he had to combat. The other thing Nietzsche felt he had to combat, of course, was Christianity. So when Nietzsche said God is dead, he said, nevertheless, one can have this tremendously fulfilled life and feel such joy in existing. And I think that Mahler very much took over that. And I think that's what we're hearing at the end of this. And the der dich rief moment, that, that homing in on that word, very much as a leader composer would, is, is one of the key moments in this. Yes, although Nietzsche wouldn't have thought that God gave him his calling. Everything that Nietzsche believes is self-initiated, but... Oh. There's a little, as it were, non-Nietzschean non bit of Mahler there that he's still adhering to that old rhetoric that God gave him his calling. I think he felt it. I mean, And that change of the word shuf to reef created to call, what does he do with reef at this point? Well, he swells the note. I mean, you can't miss it. It's absolutely fantastic. And then comes this, the soprano voice soaring over the choral texture underneath. I think it's it's a magnificent moment, and it's absolutely expresses what he wanted to to say through the music at that point. Felicity Lott soaring heavenwards in the finale of Mahler's Second Symphony with the Oslo Philharmonic conducted by Maris Janssens. Thank you for setting up that swelling moment there, Leslie, so beautifully, because, yes, I've sat there with the words and I, I, I have some idea what's going on, but when, it, when it's pointed out to you, it, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. It really does. Time to bring in Jeremy and Colin again. Maybe Jeremy first. Listening to all this talk about meanings and philosophy, do you think it's possible that 
that we can talk too much about this kind of thing. Do you think? Do you think that sometimes maybe we can philosophize too much, or does Mahler really want us to take to take his symphony away with us after we've heard it and 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 think about its meaning in this kind of sense? Well, the first thing I would say is that Mahler himself once said, "If I could communicate what I wanted to say through words, I would never write music." Oh. So, given that, I think yes. There is a lot of value in exploring the philosophical, religious, spiritual influences that acted upon him as a composer. And I think it does add extra dimensions to one's understanding. I would still argue that in the end, these are pieces of music. And even if one doesn't quite grasp the German, the music is powerful enough mm. to affect one, to inspire one, infuse one in all sorts of different ways. I mean, going back to the Nietzsche and Schopenhauer question. I think this is, it's fraught with difficulties because Mahler was known to have made quite disparaging remarks about Nietzsche's philosophy. I think he had a love-hate relationship with the philosophy of Nietzsche and indeed the philosophy of um, Schopenhauer as well. Um, I, I think he did have a love-hate relationship with a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, I think the point with Mahler is that he was always questioning. Mm. He never took things at face value. He never accepted things without deeply questioning them. In the end, it, my belief is that Mahler was convinced in the existence of some kind of transcendental realm. He, he searched at least for it. He, he searched for the divine. He searched for a spirituality. But he didn't subscribe to any kind of dogmatic religion. And so in that sense, I suppose one could um, say he had a great affinity with, with Nietzsche particularly. I mean, I believe Schopenhauer was an atheist, so I don't know how that sort of fits in with the whole argument. He certainly believed in the transcendental possibility, yes. though. That's the yeah. thing. In fact, he's, he's the great hope for the atheist, isn't he, in the 19th century, of there being a transcendental possibility, even with, without any kind of God at all. Absolutely. Yes. So you could see in Mahler an invitation to an atheist spirituality, which is something yes. that... Yes, quite possibly. I mean, a, a way of trying to work out what it means that God is dead, yes. or, or making meaning out of that, um, mm. that statement or that suggestion. Colin, I mean, we've just heard that passage, which Leslie beautifully set up, and it, it, it helps a great deal to know about the words, yet there still comes the point at which you, the music, you just end up surrendering to the music, and the music seems to say something, which, well, it reminds me of the Mendelssohn remark that music is a language too precise for words, almost, you know. Do you feel that, in the end, as a composer, because I know that, like me, you'd have grown up in an age when programmes, all sorts of programmatic talk, was absolutely considered the worst possible way to approach music. Do you still feel like that, or do you think that the programmes have, if limited, use in helping us understand this music? I think they have a, certainly a use. I wouldn't even say it was necessarily a limited use, as long as you don't take them as the be-all and end-all. Certainly the culture we grew up in would not have approved, but on the other hand, you had the alternative of the incredibly erudite and abstruse programme note, which, oh, yes. which, which helps no more. Sometimes you've got the impression that composers put more effort into the programme note than they did into actually well, composing was, the work. the long-standing joke that the programme note takes longer to read than the piece takes to play. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be without Mahler's programme note, but mm. you've also got to be aware of the fact that he disowned it. One of the things for me about the the movement of the symphony the, towards the, the resurrection is that I, I feel that Mahler's almost trying to make himself believe that when the words oglaba, oh, believe, oh. he's sort of telling himself that. Mm. And I have been at performances where I've felt that the end, rather than being triumphant, is almost a sort of desperate assertion of belief. Well, you've touched on something really crucial here, and, and, and this I'm glad to see you brought along some very interesting examples of this, and this is how much difference the performance can make to how we interpret the meaning of this movement. And there's, there are so many possibilities within these notes of meaning, and so much depends on, on how a conductor, for instance, approaches it. And, and you brought along two, well, in terms of time, fascinatingly different ways of approaching this symphony. Well, I'm very fascinated by the performance tradition, which, of course, with Mahler is almost non-existent, as certainly in terms of recordings, we have the few piano rolls that Mahler made, oh. which give us an idea, but Mahler's piano technique and what we know of how piano rolls were transcribed can't really give us an, uh, much of an insight. So we have to go back to the conductors who work with Mahler, obviously Klemper and Bruno Walther, oh. 
But the but their example, views of Mahler are so different. This uh, is uh, it. Well, early Klemperer uh, yeah. is is more radical. He got he got mm. more and more conservative. Mm. The example I want to play is the earliest ever recording of a Mahler symphony. It's by Oscar Fried, made in 1924 with the Berlin Philharmonic. And Fried, who conducted the Second Symphony in Mahler's presence in 1905, obviously had a considerable authority. And although it's not a performance that is radically different from what we know. There is a, a much more changes of tempo. There's sometimes immediate changes of tempo, which even go against what is in the score. You've chosen a passage from the first movement, I think, to illustrate this. Why, why this particular passage? Well, I think because it shows places where he almost changes direction in a way that people don't do in these days. It's also a very structurally interesting point because it's the end of the development going into the recapitulation and it's a most extraordinary moment of recapitulation. Absolutely extraordinary. Oscar Fried's 1924 recording of Mahler's Second Symphony. Remarkably limited recording and obviously limited resources there. And well, yet, I think a very, very small string body. They just couldn't accommodate it and, and mm. things had to be done to artificially... Oh, acoustic that. horns all over the place, yes. no doubt. And yet, it's astonishing. As you say, very fluid, very volatile, very changeable. But how well he gets around all yeah. those corners. It never seems to lose its conviction for a moment. Mm. No, it's totally convincing. And in such a familiar environment, too. I mean, they would have had very little experience of doing that sort of thing in the studio. At in all. the studio, I would have yeah. thought it would have been unique. It's, it's, it was the biggest recording of its time and very ambitious. Hugely. Well, you've also brought along another Janssen's uh, recording with the Concertgebouw. This you brought along to show us how things have changed and how much things can change in our understanding of a passage like that. It's, in some ways, not dissimilar. The duration is remarkably close. I think there's only about a five-second difference between these two stretches. But Janssen has, has a great deal of flexibility. I wouldn't be surprised if he knows that Freed performance because there's a feeling that it belongs to that tradition. Mm. On the other hand, he doesn't do the sort of radical changes, the radical gear changes and the, the fluidity that, that Freed achieves.
Boris Janssen's with the Concertgebouw. That was very interesting for me, just listening to that, Colin, because I was much, much more aware as we approached that big fanfare before the return, bum, ba-dum, ba-dum, of, of almost like being told, right, prepare yourself, we're about to have the recapitulation, this is the introduction. Whereas in The Freed, it felt so much more fluid. Like it becomes kind of... almost a surprise, and it is yes. a very strange moment of recapitulation, because Marla just jump cuts into it. Mm. He actually omits the opening phrase that, mm. that the symphony opens with, but goes in halfway through. Which was much more vivid in the Freed's case, again, despite the limitations of the recording. Leslie, I saw you smiling away as you were listening to Oscar Freed. <laughs> yes, I thought I was listening to an early film score. Um, I, I could see, you know, the hero was, will he get away, will he get away? He's sort of running and being pursued by a giant fate shadow behind him. Well, that was but... part of the culture that <laughs> Marla knew. I mean, again, do you think yes, this is... Yes, it's interesting there? that Leslie says that, because, in fact, Marla's music has been used a huge number of times in films. I mean, it's when one thinks of Death in Venice, but I've, I've actually been looking into this, and there's well over 130 examples of Mahler's music being used in films, dating mm. from the 60s, really, up to the present day. So, If he'd mm. lived and stayed in America, what might have happened? <laughs> <laughs> Would Corngold have got a look in? Interesting question. Um, Colin, for you, can there ever be a performance or a, a description of this work that says even most of what needs to be said about the symphony. Is, it, is, is this a case of, as Alfred Brendel said, in a completely different concept, great music is greater than it can ever be played? I wouldn't ever want to... It would be far too reductionist to try to say what any symphony is about. And I, you, you, obviously the quote that Mahler is supposed to have said to Sibelius, the symphony must be like the world, it must express everything, I think that says it all. Uh, you're nodding there, Leslie. I'm absolutely in agreement with, with Colin about the symphony expressing a world. There's actually a word for that in German that's Weltanschauungsmusik. Yes. And uh, I think that's a, a very good term for it. It expresses a worldview. It expresses the whole of what Mahler feels about being alive. And I particularly take away from this symphony that sense of the dramatic possibilities and emotional possibilities of an individual life. I really think we're coming to something new there. Hmm. And um, that's why we can respond so keenly to it still. Very modern indeed Absolutely. in that sense, yes. Jeremy? I think the beauty of all music is that every time you hear a work, you hear something different in it. And that's particularly the case with Mahler, who takes us, particularly in this symphony, on such a complicated journey. Every time I listen to the symphony, I find something different, something new, something unexpected. And to me, that's the true value of, of his music, that it reveals new things, new perspectives, new thoughts to me, uh, every time I listen to it. And now we turn to Mahler's first thoughts on this symphony or indeed his tone poem, Tortenfire. It's worth remembering, isn't it, that at this stage Mahler was a very, very busy conductor who basically sandwiched composing into more or less his summer holidays in his spare time. And yet he managed to create this extraordinary, impressive first go even then. Colin, Tortenfire itself, is it significantly different from the no, first it's not. moment? No, it's, it's very close. There are some things which, are, which were added, but in terms of the actual structure, it's very close to the first movement it's a little in terms of orchestration it's slightly cruder and there's a smaller it's a much more normal sized orchestra it's a much it? more normalized orchestra yes totenfire was actually sketched as an independent symphonic poem almost immediately after Mahler finished the first symphony and he in fact talked about it as the hero of my first symphony is buried here hmm. these are the funeral rites Funeral marches were an obsession for Mahler. I think his earliest known piano piece was a polka in the form of a funeral march. <laughs> That's so Mahlerian, isn't it? Yes. And there is the funeral march in the first symphony, although that's full of irony. It's a very grotesque one, as opposed to the huge seriousness of the Totenfire. But this was uh, an independent movement. At this stage, Mahler was the composer of two symphonic poems. I mean, the first symphony was called a symphonic poem in yes. two parts. Totenfire was an independent symphonic poem. There's almost a five-year gap, which is an extraordinary period for a, a young composer finding his way where he is building his career as a conductor but barely able to compose. And it's not until he hears the Klopstock Ode that he suddenly realises there's the, the genesis of the symphony and he must call these works symphonies. He actually, there's a letter where he says, I can't go around 
talking about symphonic poems anymore. I've got to write symphonies. Well, thank you, Colin. And indeed, thank you, all of you, Colin Matthews, Leslie Chamberlain and Jeremy Barham for a very enjoyable discussion. We haven't begun really to cover all that you could say about this symphony, but I've certainly found what you said very helpful and illuminating. So here then is Mahler's first take on what then wasn't the first movement of a symphony, but a tone poem in its own right, Totem Fire, Funeral Rites, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Pierre Boulez.